The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. Well, if you want to follow along in your bulletin or in your um, phone with the scripture app, um, Bible app, we're looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and we started back in last week, and this week we're looking again at the Seventh Commandment as Jesus is bringing a correction. And the Pharisees thought as long as they didn't commit the physical act of adultery that they hadn't committed the act, and Jesus is giving a correction to that. And we're looking in particular at verses 31 to 37 uh, this morning. and talking about divorce and keeping our, our vows some years ago, Pat Conroy, who's a writer, went to the Citadel. He wrote a, an article called Requiem for a Marriage, and it's frightening and sobering. He wrote this for Reader's Digest, and he's talking about divorce. And he writes that each divorce is the death of a small civilization. Two people declare war on each other, and their screams and tears infect the entire world with their pain. The greatest fury comes from the wound where love once issued forth. I find it hard to believe how many people now get divorced, how many submit to such extraordinary pain, for there are no clear, clean divorces. Divorces should be conducted in surgical wards. In my own case, I think it would have been easier if Barbara had died. I would have been gallant at her funeral, shed real tears far easier than staring across a table telling each other it was over. It was a killing thing to look at the mother of my children and know that we would not be together for the rest of our lives. It was terrifying to say goodbye to reject a part of my own history. How does it happen that two people that once loved each other, who felt incomplete in the absence of the other, are brought to the moment of grisly illumination when they decided that it's gone irretrievably wrong? How can love change its garments and come disguised as indifference, anger, and even loathing? Divorce should be, a declared, should be declared a form of insanity or a communication disease. How often married couples seem to feel threatened around their divorced friends. I've seen no one walk out of a divorce unmarked. It makes you a different person. You can enter the sinister cocoon as a butterfly and stagger out later as a caterpillar doomed to walk under the eye of the spider. There is not metaphors powerful enough to describe the moment when you tell the children about the divorce to look into the eyes of your children and tell them that you're mutilating their family and changing all their tomorrows. Personally, he says, it felt as though I had doused my entire family with gasoline and struck a match. Is it any wonder that the wedding vows before wedding ceremony will often say that marriage is good Yet nonetheless, it's not to be entered into unadvisedly or um, lightly, but reverently, discreetly, advisedly, soberly, and in the fear of God. Jesus is giving a sober warning here again in the Sermon on the Mount, picking up at Matthew 5, verse 31. He said, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery 
and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Let me pray again for us. Father, your word is very clear. We do ask that you would make it even clearer to us. And Lord, I pray for our hearts to be completely pliable to your will and that you would have your way among us, Holy Spirit. Come and remove the cancer in our hearts, all bitterness and jealousy. Lord, we pray that Lord, the wisdom that comes down from above would be in us of humility and sobriety and peacemaking. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus has started this Sermon on the Mount after the Beatitudes, and he's making it clear that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then he gives six corrections in the Sermon on the Mount, and he's saying that, th that our righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. And with these six corrections that he, that he gives in the rest of the chapter 5, he'll usually begin with, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And six times he does that. And, he's, and he, makes, he wants us to know that sinful anger is murder. That lust for a woman, lust over someone else other than your spouse that's adultery. Divorce and remarriage except for immorality, sexual immorality, is adultery. And swearing and taking oaths were being taken, they were evasively swearing. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. And then he gives a correction about retaliation that you think an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. Jesus has a whole different idea about what that should look like. And then he gives a big correction about that we're to, uh, to treat our enemies, not to hate them, but to love them. And so in the middle of this, Jesus' correction of the seventh commandment, once again I was saying that the Pharisees thought they had it right. And so they were building their life around this, and Jesus is like pulling the carpet out and showing them, actually, you have it all wrong, and therefore your foundation is all wrong. Because your foundation was that you were keeping these commandments, and now you're finding out you haven't kept any of them. And therefore, your foundation cannot be in yourself for righteousness. You need another foundation. I titled this message Faithfulness because both of the passages, both about swearing and about divorce, are all dealing with faithfulness. And the first is faithfulness to our marriage vows. And the second passage is dealing with faithfulness with our words. We're to be people of our word. And so as we consider faithfulness this morning, that was why our call to worship this morning was from Psalm 15, and we did the confession of sin, because both of those begin with this question of, who can approach you? Who can approach you? And it's he who swears to his own hurt and does not change, as Psalm 15. And Psalm 20, 24 is who shall ascend to the Lord, hill of the Lord. And it's he who has clean hands pure heart, one who doesn't lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. 
Now, now granted, Jesus did this perfectly, and he's the only one who has, has sworn to his own hurt and has not changed and has never sworn deceitfully. And so we all come to God through Jesus. But does that mean that since God has been appeased, now that we can go and sin all we please? Or as his disciples, who baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are we not to teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you? And this is one of the very commands right here in Matthew 5, 31 to 37. This is part of the very great commission that we as his people, as his followers, are to be about. And in Jesus' day, as William Barclay in his commentary helps bring about, the Jews had divided their, I'm going to start with the oaths first and then work backward to to marriage, but they divided oaths into two classes, those that were binding, absolutely, and those that were not. Any oath which contained the name of God was absolutely binding. Any oath which succeeded in evading the name of God was not held to be binding. The result was as if a man swore by the name of God in any form, he would have to rigidly keep the oath. But if he swore by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem or by his head, it's like he was okay to break that oath. The result was that evasion had been brought to a fine art. And so in actuality, what you had in Jesus' day was evasive swearing. It was really a form of trickery. We have something like that today. It's called fine print. Kim and I, on Friday, we filled out an application for refinancing on our, on our home since the interest rates for 20-year mortgages and 15-year mortgages are below 3%. We thought, well, man, we've got to take advantage of this. And so I was on the phone with the lady, and she told me it would only take about 20 minutes to do the process to fill out the online application. Well, two hours later, much of that was these wonderful conversations between Kim and I of discerning what really are we, are we doing here and uh, what, what is our goal. And because you can get different rates and pay different things. And anyway, so two hours later, we finished the application and we've done the closing cost. And online it tells you it's, it's, only, it's less than $500, which is wonderful. We get done, we re- review our application, and you click on it and it says review and it says the, cl- the cost is now 3000 close to $3,000, 2700 So I called the lady on the phone, and I said, what happened? I said, your website is clear. Here is the cost. And she says, no, we can't put everything in that space, and you have to click on the little button, little details button over onto the right. Do you see that little button? I said, no, I don't. Well, she, and I finally found it, and I said, that's a pretty big hide, don't you think? You see the hook is to get you to, to bite on the hook for the, for the 500, and then once you're too tired to fight, and now that you've, they've hauled in their fish, and then, then, they, and then they hit you with the real fee. Well, that's what makes the world go round. But it's not to be so with God's people. We're to be people that our yes is yes, and our no is no, and we're not trying to hide the truth. I recently got a book on, uh, I won't say what website, but it said for $4 more, you can have the book in the audio form. For $4 more. Book was $9. I thought, hmm, $4, I could get the audio version. $4 more, so I bought it. Then I got charged $13.95. $4 more. 
$4 more than what you paid for the book. <laughs> trick, trick. And then you got to pay a membership fee to have the book read to you, which you start your audio account, Audible account, and that's, you know, $9.99 a month. And anyway, about 50 bucks later, I got my book for $4 more. Well, I'm sure many of you remember the classic scene in Seinfeld <clears throat> where Jerry and, and Elaine go to rent a car and they get to the rental car company and they tell them that we don't have that size car anymore, but we have this little one. And Jerry says, but I made a reservation. And she says, I know that you made a reservation. He says, but anybody, he says, look, anybody can take the reservations. The whole point of taking the reservation is hold, holding the reservation. There's a problem with the hold. Well, this happened a few years ago to Mr. Wiley. Bruce was getting ready to go on a Covenant Village trip, and the very day that he was to go pick up the van, and he called the, the company to go pick up his van, and they told him, we don't, we don't have that van. And whatever you do, you don't want to get into a logical debate with Bruce. That, that's bad. But this guy, Bruce just logically walked him through a logical deduction and caught the guy in an absolute lie. And he showed them that no, you're clearly lying to me. And it's clear, and I told Bruce, it's clear what happened. Somebody came along, wanted the van more than you, and said, I'll pay you 100 or $200 more to give me the van. And the company said, all right, you can have it. And so for $200 or whatever it was, extra, that, door, that, that van went out the door. Because they were not willing to swear to their own hurt and not change. They swore deceitfully because a better offer came in. That's a lot what's happening in marriage today. People make reservations, but it's all about the hold, not just the take. And as Jesus' ambassadors here on earth, we're to do things differently. If you sell something on Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace, be true to your word. If there's something wrong with whatever you're selling, disclose that information. Once again, another Bruce story. Bruce was selling a, I told him, is it okay if I tell a couple of stories about you today? So he was selling a vehicle on Craigslist and uh, his old Suburban, and the air conditioning did not work. And so he disclosed that, and the guy came along and, and bought the vehicle and gave him a song and dance that this is for my daughter, you know, and I think she even was kind of needy, had some special needs or something, and basically kind of played it up a little bit. And so Bruce gave him a good deal on the car, and then Bruce saw the same car the next day, listed again, and the price was jacked up. And it said, air conditioning, ice cold. And so Bruce purposely left his ad up so that if anybody was looking for the car, they would wait a minute. We're talking about the same car, and this car says air conditioning you know, doesn't work, and this one says air conditioning, ice cold. And so somebody actually called Bruce, and Bruce had to tell him, about the air conditioning and what he actually sold the car for and that this guy is not somebody you should trust. Good job, Bruce. <laughs> well, that brings up an important question because I hear sometimes people say, if you look at this passage, Jesus is saying, well, he's saying, just be people of your word. Let your yes be yes, your no, no. And so that means I shouldn't make a vow at all, that I shouldn't swear at all. So why even have a marriage ceremony? 
We've just come together physically and we're already married in the eyes of God. Maybe you've never heard that articulated to you yet. <laughs> but there's people that say, well, the Bible says you're not even to swear or to take oaths, so why are we even having a marriage ceremony? And we have to keep in mind that Jesus is correcting evasive swearing and evasive taking of oaths, but the Bible is actually full of vows, full of swearing and full of oaths. Our God is a covenant-keeping God. In Matthew 26, verse 63, Jesus is before the high priest, and the high priest said, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. So he's under oath, and Jesus says, yes, it is as you say. But as I, I say to all of you in the future, you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The Apostle Paul refers to this as Jesus making the good confession in 1 Timothy 6. So Jesus did not have a problem with being put under oath. He testified to the truth. You see, our God is the God who walked between the pieces. He's the one who told Abraham to get the animals and cut the animals. And God's the one who walked between them and making the covenant. God is the one who, after um, saving uh, Isaac and providing the lamb in the thicket. You remember that story. And then he swore to Abraham. He said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, because you have done this, not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand of the seashore. Psalm 110.4, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The very passage we looked at this morning, Psalm 132, that God swore that he would put one of his sons on the throne forever, one of the sons of David. And so in Hebrews 6, this is a great passage to bring encouragement to us. We're told that when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently awaited, obtained the, prom the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and all their disputes and oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired, desired more convincingly to, to the heirs, to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, that we have a faithful, covenant-keeping God who has sworn and taken an oath. And so our God is for us, not against us, and nothing can change that. And so as the Bible is full of oaths, and we see uh, God is, is full of that as well, of taking oaths, and he tells us in Deuteronomy 6, it is the Lord your God whom you shall fear, you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. And then in Ecclesiastes 5, when you make a vow to the Lord, do not delay in fulfilling it, for he has no pleasures and fools, pay what you vow. It's better that you not vow than you should vow and not repay or pay. And so when you vow a vow to God, 
it's assuming there's going to be times where we are going to make vows. And so as this relates to marriage, the Bible says a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. Well, to cleave is this fancy word to make a covenant. And that what God has brought together, let no man put asunder. You say, well, where's God in, in this marriage ceremony we see? Well, God is not a passive participant, is he? He's an active participant. What Theos has brought together, let not Anthropos put asunder. What God brings together, let no man put asunder. And that begins with you, personally, in your marriage. God not only listens to the vows, it's God who's cementing the vows and bringing them together, what God joins together. And so the idea here is what God has joined together, let no man separate. The, the passage that I'm referring to is actually the beginning of your bulletin. If you look at Matthew 19, is the passage that I'm referring to. And he says, what, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And the idea here is that the, the bringing together is yoking animals. And that takes the farmer who links these two animals together. They can't be yoked together on their own. The farmer has to do that. Well, the Lord is the one yoking these animals together. And yet, we're not animals. We are image bearers of God. And one of the things that makes us different than animals is animals are driven by impulse and habits. Animals can't make promises. But we, as his covenant people who are made in his image, we make public promises and vows for life. Animals can multiply. <clears throat> Animals can have sex. That doesn't make them married. And either does just because you're married does it, or having sex doesn't make that you're, that you're married. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, you've had five husbands and the man you are now with is not your husband. So just having sex doesn't mean that you're married at all. And so God says in Malachi, because of the importance of marriage, he says that he hates divorce. And the reason why is because your wife is your companion by covenant. And so we see marriage as a covenant companionship. And God says, did he not make them one with a portion of, of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless or treacherous to the wife of your youth. And so what we see is that the third commandment and the seventh commandment are at stake with the very vows that we make in a wedding ceremony. Because the Lord does not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain and that to break these vows would be to be committing adultery. And so some people think, and I think the enemy plays on this, that they've made a mistake. I've often hear that, you know, like I, I should have never married this person. Well, God doesn't think he made a mistake because it says what God brought together, let no man put asunder. And in a wedding ceremony, as Tim Keller likes to say, you know, when you make your, your vows, you're not saying anything about your love for the present. It says nothing about the present. It's all about the future. You see, getting married is, is not a declaration of present love. It's a promise of future love. 
You see, when you get married, you're, what you're saying is, I don't know what the future holds, but I know I'm going to be holding it with you as long as we both shall live. And so it's security in a very uncertain world, in plenty and in want, joy, sorrow, for better or for worse. We're in this together for life. You take vows and you make vows. Why? Because you're going to need them. <laughs> when I was single, I thought I could love everybody. Then I got married and was wondering if I could ever love anybody. Because marriage doesn't reform you, it reveals you and shows you your sin and selfishness. And so Jesus is addressing this problem here because what was happening in, in Jesus' day is that divorce became so, so common. And so the Pharisees came in Matthew 19, is, if you want to follow at the beginning of your bulletin, because that's a better passage that gives a little more details about marriage because Jesus speaks on it in Matthew 5 and then Matthew 19. But the Pharisees came to him and they tested him and they said, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become, they shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. You see, once again, Jesus is giving a correction. In Jesus' day, there were two schools. There were two rival rabbinic schools who interpreted Deuteronomy 24 differently. One was the literal, uh, liberal interpretation. The other would have been more of a strict interpretation. But the debate in, in Deuteronomy 24 is all, all about the phrase, something indecent about her. So let me just read you the passage. In Deuteronomy 24... It says, uh, beginning of verse 1, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man, and her husband dislikes her and writes a, her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she's been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring, upon, do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. So you've got two schools of rabbinic thought on this. One took the hard line and the other uh, very lax line. So the one was saying that the, the, something indecent about her is referring to some type of sexual sin. Okay, And the other school was very lax to the point where something indecent about her was she was not a good cook, uh, she spoke disrespectfully of your parents, she was troublesome or quarrelsome, if he lost interest in her, maybe he wasn't, no wasn't attracted to her anymore. Um, the Pharisees wanted to see which, where's Jesus play in this side of the debate, and so they asked him the question. And the idea was that the Pharisees were reading into Moses' permission of divorce in the civil law of something that was basically a fate already accomplished. So when Moses is writing, he's saying, if this has already happened, this is what you should do. But he, they're reading into it that Moses was commanding this, whereas Moses wasn't commanding it. He allowed it as a concession 
and now they viewed it as an approval. And so Moses never commanded nor condoned divorce, divorce. He regulated a practice that was already out of hand. And so Moses' intent in Deuteronomy 24 was to prohibit the reunion of partners, prohibiting the wife from being picked up again and being treated like a piece of meat for her first husband to come and pursue her again. Moses was protecting against abuses, and he permitted it. But Jesus clears the deck by saying, from the beginning it was not so. And he goes back to the creation ordinance of marriage itself as the bedrock foundation of marriage that a man is to leave his father and mother and then cleave or to be glued to his wife and the idea if you think about that a man is to leave his father and mother is that the parent-child relationship is temporary and it's to be broken at some point it's broken when you get married but the second relationship of marriage is permanent and must never be broken and so Moses um, was not commanding this, he, he condoned it, and so the something indecent part um, is dealing with some type of sexual impropriety, I think, as you study the, the word in context and how it's used in other places in Scripture. And so Jesus is being put on the hook as to where he stands on this, and Jesus wants to make clear that he's holding up the good and the beauty of marriage and that he's he's dealing with this flippancy for people to get rid of their their spouse and in Jesus's day the woman didn't have any rights so if you're reading this thinking well what about if the woman does this women didn't do that it was the men that, that did it okay the man would be victimizing his wife and you couldn't stay single in that culture you would be remarried and so you're causing her to be an adulteress, is what Jesus is saying. Now let's take a look at this exception clause, because there is a difficult, uh, this passage is difficult. And um, so Jesus is saying, except for sexual immorality, that there is uh, an exception for divorce. And the term sexual immorality is, is once again, this Greek word porneia. And this term porneia, uh, refer, it's a class. It's, it's a class that all sexual sins would be under and one of those would be adultery, but that's not the only thing. It, it, as David uh, Clyde Jones in his Christian Ethics book puts it like this, he says, if it involves close relatives, then it, then it would be incest. If it involves persons of the same sex, it would be homosexuality. If it involves an unmarried couple, it would be unchastity or fornication. If it involves a married person outside of marriage, it's adultery. So porneia would be the class that, that all of these things would fit under that. Okay. Now what the PCA wrote a, like a 120 page position paper on this to say, well is that the only exception for divorce? And we also know that, that 1 Corinthians 7 has another exception that Paul gives and his exception is, once again, it's like a fate accomplished. It's, if the unbeliever departs, let them go. And so that would be the other exception. And so as the PCA has kind of wrestled through that, I mean, the, the issues come up where this gets, and I'm not going to go through every possible scenario, but I, where they land is that it is a physical sexual act and not just the mental act. So the idea of, 
pornography. You know, they say those things impinge upon the marriage, but they do not uh, violate or, or um, ruin the marriage bond entirely, meaning you, you, that's not necessarily a ground for divorce unless one is working with their elders and the church, and the church deems that this person is unrepentant of a particular sin like that, and they're no longer fulfilling their conjugal rights in the marriage. And so that's where this gets kind of complicated. What if, what if there's abuse involved? What if a spouse is, is being abused, or if one spouse forces, the, you know, the husband forces his wife to have an abortion, or he's threatening to take her life or to kill her? Those are things where you get your elders involved right away, and you get the authorities involved, the state involved with something like that as well. And so certainly, you know, the, the position paper, the PCA, does go into that and would see that that would fit under the exception clause in working with the elders of a church, but one's not to go into that by themselves. So this gets very complicated. And I think for us this morning, what I want you to see is that if you're single, count the cost. Don't, don't enter into marriage lightly. It is for rich or for poor, sickness, health, for better or for worse. And you don't know which way those things are going to go. So if you're single and, you, and the Lord's given you the ability to remain single, remain single. Remain in the state in which you're called. But if you desire to be married, the Bible says it's better to, to marry than to burn. Certainly marriage is an acceptable and, uh, option as well. But take these vows seriously because the damage, it's like when there is a train wreck, there is, it, there's a lot to clean up. It's a big mess. And we're seeing a big mess uh, in our culture and in our society uh, because when the no-fault divorce came about in the 70s and then 80s, you know, marriage went from like one in seven in 1920, and now it, the odds are over 50% that children uh, or that people that marry uh, will be divorced. Now let me give, for those of you that are married, I would just say as a, as a closing, what are you opening your heart to and what are you closing your heart to? Your heart is always to be open to your spouse. Are you opening your heart to your spouse and are you closing it to others? Meaning, are you opening your heart actually to somebody else and sharing stuff of an emotional level and a, an, an emotional attachment with somebody else? That's the, that's the danger and the warning. Adultery doesn't begin on a physical level. It begins on opening your heart on a spiritual level with somebody else. And then are you closing yourself off and fostering bitterness so that others can't come in and talk to you about your bitterness? The issue with divorce, the issue is, do you love your spouse? Are you letting go of all bitterness? Are you pursuing your spouse? We think about our Lord Jesus. He was the perfect spouse. And last week we talked about how our spouse, our, our deep need for intimacy and to be known, those deeper needs have to be met by our Lord and not by your spouse. 
And our Lord has loved us perfectly. He was our perfect spouse. He was given a bride before the foundation of the world, our bridegroom. And Ezekiel 16 actually says that he made a covenant with us. He says about the people of God in Ezekiel 16, he said, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an, was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite, referring to Abraham's descendants. And he says, As for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. My, no, I pitied you to do any of those things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out onto the open field, for you were abhorred on the day you were born. And when I, saw, when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. And I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And then he says, verse 8, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. And Jesus is, has pursued us, and he says, mine, about his bride. His dowry to purchase her was his own blood. He loved her and gave himself up for her to make her pure and spotless, this radiant bride. And he says in Hosea about his people, and it's interesting when you think about Hosea, it's a good book to read, by the way, a great Sunday read. There's, only, there's two main characters. You've got uh, Gomer and you've got Hosea. And then you think, well, which one am I in the story? Well, Hosea represents uh, the Lord and his faithfulness, and Gomer represents the people of God, the church in Israel. And Gomer is a spirit, she's an adulterous woman who Hosea loves and purchases. And that's the church. The church is filthy with idolatry. And Jesus loved us when we were messy and ugly. And he loved us because he loved us. And he sees what he's going to make of us. He's going to present at the last day a glorious church without spot or blemish, no moral imperfections. And he says in Hosea 2 that I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And so we all need that encouragement and that hope this morning. I know many in the church have, have been divorced. Um, and got, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. I saw a video yesterday that somebody sent me, and the person was saying that if, if you divorce, basically you can't be forgiven, and that if you've committed adultery, there wasn't really any hope for you. And the person who sent it to me, I called him and I said, that's a false teacher. This guy just put David in hell, and David is not in hell. Do the names Tamar, Rahab, David, and Bathsheba ring a bell? Tamar acted like a prostitute to save the wicked line of Judah. Rahab was a prostitute. David and Bathsheba were adulterers. And yet they're all in Jesus' genealogy. And the child that came from David and Bathsheba was named Jedidiah, beloved of the Lord. God's grace abounds in Jesus' family tree. And he's been pleased to make us part of the tree. So receive that good news. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, you are the only faithful one. Lord, forgive us where we have fallen short. 
make us more like you. We want to be people of steadfast love, of hesed love, of covenant faithfulness. We pray that your Holy Spirit would give application to this difficult passage. And we pray that it would preserve marriages, that it would do good for generations to come. Lord, you desire godly offspring, and that you desire making us one and hating divorce. And so, Lord, we want to see your church preserved and your people preserved. And we ask that you would come and help in these things. In Jesus' name, amen.